All right, so last Sunday, uh, I was watching football after, after church was over, starting to do, uh, doze in and out. Halftime came around, and instead of transitioning to uh, the normal studio with all the football analysts, uh, the screen actually went to New York City, Times Square, where there were hundreds of people who were gathered uh, right around in that Times Square, a handful of actors and actresses. Uh, they were being interviewed about the premiere uh, of the trailer for their upcoming movie. Uh, and so you probably could guess this, maybe, maybe you even saw this last Sunday, but uh, to my lack of surprise, it was just the 12th Fast and Furious movie. Uh, <laughs> and so as my wife and I were sitting there uh, talking, kind of amongst each other, that slow silence starts to come over us as the trailer begins to start. Maybe, you know, causing us to wonder if there will actually be anything different about this one than the rest. Uh, but of course, no. <laughs> Uh, the answer is no. We watched for two whole minutes as explosions, uh, bad one-liners, punches, fast cars, swimsuits, and more explosions came rolling across the screen. And uh, in short, I'll never get that two minutes back. So, um, and anyone who actually sees this sequel, uh, you probably won't get your 20 bucks back or your two and a half hours back either. So uh, this did actually get me thinking about all the, the bad sequels that we encounter. Uh, the bad sequels, whether we see them on movies or whether we see them on television or, or, or wherever, even here in places like Judges chapter 9, this is a, is a bad sequel, we could say. And uh, Judges chapter 9 is generally regarded uh, as the sequel to Gideon's account, focusing specifically on his son Abimelech. But what we'll see in this chapter concerning the events surrounding Abimelech and the city of Shechem is it's nowhere close to the kind of story that we saw with Gideon. And yet the end of Gideon's account is a major factor as to why we see what we see here in Judges chapter 9. So this is no ordinary sequel. It's, it's the worst kind of sequel. It's, a worst, it's the worst kind of follow-up to the original. It's like a 20th Fast and Furious movie. Or it's like 1997's Batman or Robin with George Clooney. Or it's like, it's like Grease 2. This is like the kind of sequel that goes straight to Netflix. It's not even like the kind of, uh, it's not even like those Taken sequels where you can pretty much predict the outcome of the entire movie within the first five minutes. Now this is different. This sequel in Judges 9, it's, it's long and it's grisly. It's the longest chapter in the book of Judges and it's one of the most lengthy individual accounts. And, and unlike Gideon and the several judges named before him, there, there are no heroes in this story. There's, there's no judge. There's no foreign oppression or opposition, and there's no cycle of deliverance here as we've seen throughout this book. Nobody's name here makes it into the honorable hall of fame that we see in the book of Hebrews chapter 11. And so if Gideon left you inspired and hopeful and somewhat familiar with how God works throughout this narrative, if you feel that after reading Judges this far that the transition sort of, kind of trajectory sort of goes up, sort of, then this sequel might cause you to leave the theater of scripture sort of, sort of caught off guard. Maybe even perhaps with a bad taste in your mouth. Maybe wanting your money back. Again, there's, there's no judge to see here today, but there is judgment. There's no foreign enemy or opposition seeking to conquer God's people, but there is an enemy. Why Judges 9 is described here in such length, I don't know, but it's a turning point for this book. It's a stark turning point, a, a turn for the worse. 
So just after one of the longest accounts of one of the more victorious judges, who is Gideon, we're introduced to the, to the twisted sequel of his son, Abimelech. And so as we touch down in a few places in this lengthy narrative, we'll, we'll see three things here today. We'll see Abimelech's conspiracy, his curse, and his condemnation. So just as some background before we jump into Judges chapter 9, let's just set up the scene here. We know from last week that Gideon, the anti-hero judge, he's ushered in the people of God into a 40-year season of rest. And furthermore, Gideon refuses the request to be a king and rule over Israel, and he falls into idolatry by setting up an ephod and ensnaring his family and the people of Israel. He takes several wives for himself and fathers 70 sons, one of whom is by a Canaanite concubine who lived in a city called Shechem. Abimelech, whose name means literally, my father is king. He's he's this son, and, and this name points to the fact that although Gideon isn't the official king of Israel, his lifestyle certainly shows that he lives like one. And plus, everyone knows during this time who runs Israel, it's Gideon and his family. Things were this way until Gideon dies in old age and he's buried at Orpha and the writer of Judges now tells us something about the spiritual climate of Israel shortly after. It says in verse 33, as soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and made Baal Barith their God. And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side. And they did not show steadfast love to the family of Jeroboam or Gideon in return for all the good that he had done to Israel. So remember that this is still a a season of of comfort and rest, of peace for God's people. But post-funeral, there's some negative things that are produced out of this rest that will become detrimental for the people of Israel and will result in them losing this rest for the foreseeable future. The first negative product of this rest is the people's forgetting God. In this climate of comfort, self-sufficiency slowly begins to creep in now, causing the people of God to turn and to covenant with more manageable deities and false gods, forgetting their covenant with the sovereign Yahweh and their dependency upon him. Furthermore, in this climate of comfort, uh, it's produced an ingratitude for God, a kind of forgetfulness that doesn't necessarily forget who God was, The people just altogether don't care who he was or what he had done for them. The person and the work of God and his covenant with them had no bearing or relevance to them whatsoever. Their knowledge of God had no control over them and produced no commitment to him. So in addition to this ingratitude towards God, the people also displayed ingratitude towards those God had worked through, particularly Gideon. The people of Israel here, they forgot Gideon. They mistreated his family and and forgot how the Lord worked through him for their deliverance. Lastly, it's this kind of comfortable climate, a, a climate with no outside opposition, with no foreign enemies, no pagan oppression. It's this kind of climate that creates an atmosphere for self destruction, an atmosphere where there's no accountability to God, where there's perceivably unending comfort for ourselves and therefore unlimited opportunity for selfish ambition in the pursuit of self-glorification. In short, this kind of negative climate of rest combined with sinful human hearts, it creates room for Abimelech's. And so chapter nine, verse one, we see Abimelech's conspiracy. 
It says, now Abimelech, the son of Jerubbabel, went to Shechem to his mother's relatives and said to them and to the whole clan of his mother's family, say in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, which is better for you, that all 70 of the sons of Jerubbabel rule over you or that one rule over you? Again, Abimelech, the product of this sort of king-concubine relationship, didn't live with his father Gideon in Orpha, but in Shechem with his mother. And perhaps this created some sort of insecurity and even hostility within Abimelech towards his 70 brothers, all of whom were presumably Israelite. And so being half Israelite, half Canaanite, Abimelech tells his relatives uh, to let Shechem's leaders know that he has an interest in politics. He wants to now live up to his name, uh, meaning my father is king. And so he poses a question to Shechem's leaders uh, and makes them an offer that they can neither refute or refuse. He comes to the leaders of Shechem and he says to them, listen, do you want the potential of Gideon's 70 70 Israelite sons as rulers over you? Men who will probably be out of touch with your needs and may not be so favorable towards you. Or do you want me? As the text says, I am your bone and flesh. And so we'll quickly see in the following verses that Abimelech is not just any politician. He's He's a crooked politician. One who will employ all kinds of twisted tactics in an effort to cause this election to go favorably for him. A pastor named Robert Deffenbaugh points out just some of the the crooked politics that Abimelech practices to secure his kingship. If you just take one look at the following verses, you see the strategy here, right? You see the campaign platform, I am your bone and flesh. Abimelech then proceeds, uh, he begins by appealing to a special interest group his own family, people who have everything to gain if he becomes king. And then you look at verse three. It says, and his mother's relatives spoke all these words on his behalf in the ears of all of the leaders of Shechem. And their hearts inclined to follow Abimelech, for they said, he is our brother. And they gave him 70 pieces of silver out of the house of Baal Barith. So now this special interest group will now employ political lobbying uh, in an effort to influence Shechem's political and religious leadership to give money to Abimelech's campaign, all most likely believing that they'll benefit in some way from their donations. So what was this money for? Well, it says, with which Abimelech hired worthless and reckless fellows who followed him. So now, in addition to all these things, he hires hatchet men, dirt diggers, political henchmen hired to to tilt the scales even through means of destruction or violence, which is exactly what they're used for here. And so with the help of these hatchet men, verse 5 says that Abimelech took out all of the potential political competition, namely his brothers, as he went to his father's house at Orpha and killed his brothers, the sons of Jeroboam. 70 men on one stone. See, this was a different day with a different government. But all politics aside, we we see these sorts of things today as well, don't we? And the fact that I've used these terms, special interest groups and uh, political lobbying and contributions and hatchet men, this is no swipe at our present day political parties or structures. No, what this shows us is that despite whatever government or political system, sinful people make up sinful systems. And this is why our ultimate hope as the people of God can never rest in human leadership or systems, but it must rest in our true king. And so Abimelech, 
in a sordid and gruesome display of violent ambition, he slaughters his brothers, 70 of them, the sons of Gideon, on one stone. Now, the text here never says anything about their ambitions or of wanting to be king, but from what we've seen from Abimelech thus far, this dude's insecure. He's reckless, he's paranoid, and he's most likely projected his insecurities on his brothers. And so in the midst of this slaughter, this massacre, as Abimelech is piling up the the bodies of his brothers, 70 of them, one of them is still alive. Verse 5, but Jotham, the youngest son of Jerubbabel, was left, for he hid himself. So after this, the people and the leaders of Shechem, looking the complete, uh, completely opposite direction, looking the other way at these horrific murders, they now proceed to conclude this conspiracy by making Abimelech king by the oak pillar at Shechem. Why is this important? Well, the location of Shechem is important now because, yes, this is Abimelech's hometown. It's also the place where Joshua stood years earlier and gathered all of God's people together to renew their covenant with God. And so now as Abimelech enters Shechem being celebrated by his relatives, his henchmen, and his followers, what was once a glorious landmark for remembering Israel's covenant with God has now been turned upside down and has become a repulsive mark and stain signifying Israel's rebellion and their downfall. A certain writer has said that this coronation of Abimelech at such a a revered place for Israel would have been like reinstituting slavery at Gettysburg. Now up to this point, up to this point, the people of Israel have never had a king. This is the first shot at it, this sort of self-made king Abimelech. God has always been the supreme ruler of his people, giving them his law, protecting them, and instructing them through leaders like Moses and Joshua. And now with Abimelech setting himself up as king, this will be the first time that Israel would submit themselves to a monarch, more like a despot. And as much as it appears that Abimelech has won over everybody through deception or through fear, and as much as it appears that his, all his loose ends have been tied up or cut, he hasn't won over everyone. And one of the most vocal opponents to his reign will be his one half-brother who escaped from that horrendous and horrific day in Orpha, a man named Jotham. So now we proceed to see Abimelech's curse. Look at verse 7, and it says, When it was told to Jotham that he, he went and stood up on top of Mount Gerizim and cried aloud. So now that Jotham has received news that his brother Abimelech has been confirmed as king, he makes a visit to Shechem as a, as a fugitive. He doesn't go all the way into the city. He stands on, sort of on top on a high peak on this mountain. And as this coronation continues, Jotham, a man whose name literally means Yahweh keeps it honest, he stands on the top of this mountain, Mount Gerizim, and he speaks honestly by telling Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem a parable. And this is one of the first parables that we see mentioned here in Scripture. And in Jotham's parable, he begins by describing the desire of these trees of a forest to anoint a king over themselves. And so one by one, these trees approach some very suitable candidates, an olive tree, a fig tree, and a grapevine. Each of these trees, due to their agricultural usefulness in producing oil and fruit and wine, they they turn down the offer of these other trees because to rule over them would be a lesser and fruitless task. 
And so finally, these trees, they approach a bramble or a thorn bush, and they extend this same offer to the thorn bush, to which uh, the, the bramble, the thorn bush, accepts under one condition, that these tall trees, these tall cedars, would bend so low as to come and find refuge in the shade of a two-foot-high bramble bush, an impossible and even ridiculous request. And so what's Jotham's point in this parable? Well, he makes it plain. He speaks honestly. The trees are the leaders of Shechem. Instead of finding someone worthy of kingship, they rashly settle for this bramble, Abimelech, someone who is worthless and totally unqualified for leadership. Abimelech, he'll, he'll spend more time vying for power than actually getting anything done for the people of Israel. And like the bramble, he's more effective in destruction than he is in actually producing any true fruit. And so this is what Jotham's point is in verses 16 through 20. He decries the actions of the leaders of Shechem and Abimelech by, by warning them that if they had, hypothetically speaking, if they had done right and acted faithfully in making Abimelech king, which they hadn't, then may they find blessing. If, they done, if they've done right by Gideon and his family, which they haven't, then may they rejoice in Abimelech. But if they haven't done these things, which is actually true of them, then he says, may all of you get what you deserve. To be burned by one another and destroyed. So Jotham then drops the mic and we never hear from him again for the rest of this narrative. Now this sequel deserves an, an intermission. Thus far, we've seen the results of a people who have forgotten God in worship and in deed. And just three quick things about theirs and our forgetfulness. Because, because listen, although we may not see the same kind of carnage in our lives displayed here by Abimelech and these people, our sinful hearts are the, are the same and they're often rooted in the same motivations. And so firstly, the, this kind of for, forgetfulness of God, his, his grace, his deliverance of us, it always leads God, God's people astray. It leads them into selfishness, into, into disunity and idolatry and sinful ambition, insecurity, deceitfulness, and denial. This is the kind of for, forgetfulness that brought divisions and rivalry within a certain Corinthian church Paul wrote, that Paul wrote a letter to. It caused them to prioritize and to boast in human wisdom and brilliance of speech selfishly. And it caused them to overemphasize spiritual gifts. See, sin fuels the desire to rule, for us to rule ourselves, to trust in ourselves by any means necessary, which is why Paul reminds the Corinthian at the end of that letter in chapter 15, he reminds them of the gospel of which they had received and of which they had been saved. See, if these people were going to have the proper perspective as the people of God, then they and we must remember God and his work accomplished for us. Furthermore, this forgetfulness of God warps our views on leadership. See, apart from God and his grace, all leadership, specifically church leadership, it becomes about power and ambition and appearances and pragmatism over and rather than God's qualifications that he establishes in his word. Listen, as God's redeemed people, as his church, we will do well to avoid association with and in the enabling of people like Abimelech. And in turn, we, should, we would do well to identify and affirm those who are like Jotham. 
Listen, lastly, when we forget God, we forget that he's always at work in his sovereignty, even behind the scenes, unsuspecting, unspectacular perhaps, but purposeful, always accomplishing what he wills to accomplish for the good of his glory and for the ultimate salvation of his people. Intermission over. So, speaking of God, where has God been in verses 1 through 21? Where has he been throughout all of these verses, throughout Abimelech's murder of his 70 brothers, throughout his arise and wicked arise to power and corrupt, corrupt politics? Well, God is silent, but he's certainly not sidelined. No, there have been no angelic messengers, no mighty men hiding in vats, no, no dew on any fleeces, no voices, no, no visions. Just silence. But look, this isn't just any silence or silence that ignores the blatant rebellion of his people. This is a silence of judgment. This is a silence uh, that has given Abimelech everything that he's wanted in exactly the fashion that he's wanted it. This is like the silence of a lion hunting, quietly waiting for its prey to be exactly where it wants before it moves in swiftly. This is exactly what's happening here. Abimelech is exactly where God wants him to be for God's purposes. So we've seen this conspiracy and we've seen, we've seen Abimelech's rise to power. Now we see this condemnation. So just as Jotham spoke of a, a consuming fire between Shechem and Abimelech, the consuming fire of God's judgment on Abimelech and Shechem now begins. If you look at verses 22 and 23, it says that Abimelech ruled over Israel three years, and God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem. So now that Abimelech's reign has been established, it's possible that both he and Shechem went through a, a honeymoon phase, maybe successful in their first few years, but now into this story comes not a left-handed judge, not a spirit-empowered man with an ox goat, not an army of 300 men. No, rather God himself acts as the judge here. God himself is the judge in this account, sending an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem. Now, this evil spirit now plays itself out through the leaders of Shechem in that they dealt treacherously with Abimelech. They acted deceitfully towards him. Well, why? So that the violence done to the 70 sons of Jerubbabel might come and their blood be laid on Abimelech, their brother, who killed them, and on the men of Shechem who strengthened his hands to kill his brothers. So what's happening here? Well, clearly it's judgment. It's judgment for the innocent blood of Gideon's sons that was spilled by Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem. And notice, this doesn't come from an outsider. This doesn't come from a foreign king or any type of pagan opposition. No, this comes from within. Under the judgment of God, both Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem will now both, they will both participate in their own condemnation. And verse 25 says that the leaders of Shechem put men in ambush against him on the mountaintops and they robbed all who passed by them along the way and it was told to Abimelech. So based on this move from the leaders, the headlines in the newspapers of Shechem would have most likely read something like this. Feel safe? Abimelech not tough enough on crime. 
And this would have painted him as, uh, this would have undermined him and painted him as an unsatisfactory ruler. So the next phase of this condemnation we see comes in verses 26 through 40, as another opponent of Abimelech enters the picture, this man named Gaal. And all the commentators making this sort of corny joke tell us that Gaal certainly had a lot of gall, which again is corny, but nobody laughed in the first service or second service, so I just had to say it. I didn't make it up, so yeah, anyways. So Gaal, he's well-liked by these leaders of Shechem. He, he moves into the city with his family, and, and one day at a festival, Gaal, under, probably under the influence of some liquid courage, he, he starts running his mouth about Abimelech. He starts talking sideways about Abimelech, reviling him. And so Abimelech, as insecure and as paranoid as he is, he's, he's the kind of man who has ears everywhere. He's told by one of his henchmen, a man named Zabul, that Gaal is stirring up people against him. And so Abimelech is given a strategy by this man, Zabul, to attack Gaal at night and all the people who were reviling and who were with Gaal. And so this man, Gaal, whose bark is eventually exposed to be much bigger than his bite, he's overwhelmed at the size of Abimelech's army when Abimelech comes out against him. And Zabul, this man, sort of humorously looks at Gaal and says, where's your mouth now? And so Gaal and mistaking Abimelech's army for the, the shadow of the mountains. He's overwhelmed and he's driven out of Shechem by Abimelech and his men. The people who ended up fleeing and, and retreating in that battle ended up running into a city and finding refuge there. And so the day after Abimelech defeats Gaul, he's told again that the Shechemites who had fled into the city the previous day, they were now coming out of the city. And upon their exiting the city, Abimelech kills them all. And even further, in showing the deep hatred that he has developed for Shechem, because of the betrayal, Abimelech raises the city with salt. This would have been a practice that made the city completely uninhabitable. And furthermore, his wrath not being satisfied, Abimelech is again told that the leaders of Shechem, the same ones who elected him in the beginning and now are acting treacherously towards him, he's told that they all gathered in the temple of their idol, fleeing Abimelech. So Abimelech pursues them and proceeds to burn down this tower, killing about a thousand men and women. And so we see the words of Jotham ring true. From this reckless and vengeful bramble king has now come forth fire to consume the people of Shechem. So after this, Abimelech moves fervently to the city of Thebes. With the same intentions, the, the Shechemites would now know better than to cross a man like Abimelech, and nothing was going to stop him from teaching these people a severe lesson. And so look at verses 50 through 52. Abimelech approaches the best. He attacks and he captures it. In similar fashion to Shechem, the people of the city, men and women and all of the leaders, they run into a strong tower for safety. And Abimelech pursues, probably thinking that he's got a great military strategy going on here. He burns the city, he burns the city down, he attacks it, he puts all these people in one place and he, he kills them all and locking them in this one tower. And so as Abimelech attacks this tower, making his way towards the door, he has no idea that he's exactly where God wants him. Most likely thinking that he was at the, near the end of his conquest, Abimelech is actually at the, near the end of his life. 
So verse 53 says that a certain woman threw an upper millstone on Abimelech's head and crushed his skull. And this woman, although she won't get the hype that a young David gets when he later kills Goliath with a single stone, this certain woman, this second unsuspecting woman to kill a wicked ruler in this book, she's the one who delivers the knockout blow that will end the nightmare that is this reign of Abimelech. And do you notice the irony here? The wicked king who killed his 70 brothers on one stone is now mortally wounded by a stone. So Abimelech, now severely wounded, becomes severely humiliated. A woman, one with no armor, no sword, only with the fear of her life and the nearest weighted object, she'll be the one responsible for killing this man. A man who views himself as great in his own eyes. And Abimelech, he won't have it. He tells his armor bearer to take his sword and kill him, lest his posthumous legacy and reputation suffer. Now look at that. His legacy, his reputation, these aren't the kinds of things that we'd be willing to, to die for, right? No, wrong. Even in his death, Abimelech, this self-made and self-indulgent king, continues to serve the God that is himself. And so now the second phase of this condemnation is complete. The fire from the wicked Bramble King has consumed the people of Shechem. And now the fire from the people of Shechem has consumed this wicked and worthless Bramble. Now this is no ordinary sequence of events. Sure, on a human level, this wicked king was politically deceived by his subjects, leading to a coup in the empire in which the king responds by attempting to and somewhat successfully putting an end to the rebels, only to be killed in the process. On a human level, the hatred was real, the deception was infuriating, the murder was vengeful, but once again, the origin of these things happening in this condemnation of Abimelech and Shechem, it comes ultimately from God himself, which is why verse 56 says, thus God... Thus God returned the evil of Abimelech, which he committed against his father in killing his 70 brothers. And God also made all of the evil of the men of Shechem return on their heads, and upon them came the curse of Jotham, the son of Jerubbabel. Yes, it was the woman who dropped this stone. Abimelech killed the Shechemites. Gaal planned the rebellion. The Shechemites deceived Abimelech by setting up ambushes. They all are responsible for their actions, and they each acted freely in doing such. But overarching and even interwoven in each of these actions is the providential and sovereign hand of God working ultimately for his purposes, for his glory, and for the deliverance and the salvation of his people. See, if you notice verse 56 and 57, they're the other bookend to verses 23 and 24 that attribute the events between Abimelech and Shechem ultimately to the condemnation of God upon them both. This passage actually points to God as the powerfully yet subtle orchestrator of these events for the purpose of judgment. Well, judgment for what? Well, firstly, judgment on the Canaanites. If you remember Judges chapter 1, the people of Shechem who were descendants of the Canaanites, they were the people who Israel failed to drive out of the land. 
So God would now sovereignly work through a crooked half-Israelite Abimelech, someone who rejected God and had no intentions of doing his will. He worked through Abimelech to complete his covenant purposes for his people. God used this crooked stick, this wicked king, to accomplish his good purposes to punish the Canaanites in Shechem. Secondly, this, judgment for, uh, this, this is judgment that we see on Abimelech and Shechem's wicked actions and the murder of, his, uh, of, his sev- of Gideon's 70 sons. Divine judgment here didn't come in the form of, of foreign opposition or captivity. It didn't come as fire from heaven or an earthquake uh, rumbling the ground or swall- opening up the earth or swallowing up Abimelech in the city of Shechem. No, this judgment came from within. This was a slow and subtle judgment working interpersonally, quietly, gradually over the course of time. In this story, God himself takes the hand of evil and he uses it to destroy evil. God delivers his people by causing evil to devour itself. So what can we learn from God's judgment on Abimelech and Shechem? Well, firstly, we can learn that God judges sin. As God who judges sin, he will not let sin go unpunished. He does not tolerate sin. See, it was foolish for Abimelech to believe that he could sinfully conspire to become king of God's people through murder while ignoring the supreme king of God's people who hates murder and hates all sin. All throughout Judges, God's people have been judged for sin, being taken captive by foreign armies, oppressed and snared by idols, and killed all for doing what was evil in the sight of the Lord, a phrase that we've seen has repeated itself all throughout the book of Judges. Sin kills, sin destroys, and this is what God wants us to know as his people. It doesn't take outside opposition. It doesn't take things out there or external things to destroy us. It's the sin within. It's our sinful and wicked hearts that apart from the grace of God and left to ourselves will cause self-destruction. It's ourselves. It's us that we need to be delivered from. And if there's anything God wants his people to see here, it's that he hates sin and judges it. The leaders of Shechem may have looked the other way at Abimelech's murder, but but not God. Furthermore, as with Abimelech, God's judgment may appear to be delayed at times, but it's never denied. The Apostle Paul writing to Timothy, he states that the sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later, meaning that there are times when God's judgment happens in the present. Abimelech and Shechem, they had a full three-year run before God sent this evil spirit to to bring down their reign. And this chapter certainly isn't the the norm or the blueprint as to how God always judges sin, but it certainly shows shows us that just because God may appear silent, it doesn't mean that he's absent or inactive. Next, we see that there is a curse that comes from disobedience to God's laws. Here in Judges, we see the curse from Jotham that, uh, that warned of God's judgment as if they, uh, if, if they dealt faithlessly, faithlessly with the sons of Gideon. And even though this curse was confined to Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem, it reflects the greater curse that comes from dealing faithlessly with God and breaking his commandments. 
In Genesis chapter 3, we see God's curse on the earth and Adam and Eve due to their disobedience to his command. In Deuteronomy chapter 27, we see that there was a, a curse for the people of Israel if they disobeyed God's laws and broke his covenant. Results that are now showing themselves all throughout the book of Judges. We see that this, they're experiencing this curse in their disobedience of, of God. In short, sin brings with it a curse, and that curse results in punishment, in eternal condemnation and separation from God. Listen, judgment and curses, they, they come to Abimelech's. They always come to Abimelech's. They come to all who break God's laws and disobey his requirements. They come to all who, like Abimelech, set themselves up as supreme in their hearts and reject God. And although judgment and the curse is the final word in this account of, a, of Abimelech and Shechem, although it's the last thing that we see here, we know that it's not the final word. Just as Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem killed Gideon's 70 sons in the selfish pursuit of power, there would be a time when the people of Israel killed another son with the aim of preserving their power and their nation. And this wouldn't be the son of the complicated mighty man of valor, but the son of the almighty God. And when this son of God warned them, like Jotham, of God's righteousness and convict them, convicted them of their sin, they killed him. And while judgment fell upon Abimelech and Shechem for their wicked actions, while judgment fell upon them here in the present, consuming them, judgment in the present wouldn't fall on these murderers for their actions and killing this son of God. It wouldn't consume them in the present. No, judgment actually fell upon this son of God who cried out in his death, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Even while he prays for those who judgment should have fallen on, saying, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. What's even more is that this son of God, Jesus, he, he dies for wicked people like Abimelech, people like you and I, people who, like, who through whatever means necessary seek to pursue our own glory and preserve our own reputations. People who reject God and break his laws. It's because of our sin. It's our hands that participated in the slaughter of God's son. And Jesus, he bears the punishment and the judgment from God that we deserve for our crimes against God and against each other. And now because of Jesus, all who trust in his sacrifice and turn from sin receive the justice of God. No, not in our condemnation, not in our being cast away, not in our being destroyed and crushed under God's wrath, but in our justification, in our being received and accepted before God, in our being made right before him. In his death and resurrection, Jesus Christ redeems us from the curse of the law. The curse that we brought upon ourselves for our disobedience, he redeems us by becoming a curse for us. We're declared righteous before God because of Jesus' perfect life and substitutionary death. We receive the forgiveness for our sin. We receive life and joy and peace with God forever. So listen, although we deserve it, although we deserve judgment, we don't have to suffer the same fate as Abimelech because of the gospel. 
And it's in this good news of the gospel concerning the perfect life and sacrificial death of the Son of God in the place of sinners that we see this truth displayed the clearest. The truth that James mentions in his letter that mercy triumphs over judgment. It's in the gospel that we hear about how the mercy of God triumphs over the judgment of God. And as a, as a pastor named Nicholas Batzig had said, mercy does triumph over judgment, but not by simply setting it aside. Rather, mercy triumphs over judgment because judgment is fully executed and justice is fully, finally satisfied at the cross. The mercy and the justice and the mercy of God met together at Calvary, securing God's rich and everlasting mercy for hell-deserving sinners who believe on the Son of God. Mercy triumphs over judgment because mercy comes through judgment. Judges 9, it shows us that God himself is the ultimate judge and that he judges sin, even in using its poison sometimes to condemn evil and wickedness. And if we find ourselves here today like Abimelech, we cannot run from this curse or this judgment. Our ambitions and our reputations won't save us. Our pursuits and our self-exaltation won't break this curse over us or remove this judgment. We must answer to God. He has the final word. But God has made a way through his son so that undeserving sinners can receive grace And so that in the case of all who trust in the finished work of Jesus, the Son of God who was killed for our sin, it can be said that mercy triumphs over judgment. So what does Israel do now? Their first attempt at the installation of a king has failed miserably. Abimelech corruptly rose to power and has been killed. Shechem has been judged. Verse 55 says that when the men of Israel saw that Abimelech was dead, everyone departed to his own home. I wonder how they felt in that moment. Maybe sadness or relief deflated? Well, the text doesn't say. What is clear is that this was a turn for the worst. This wasn't like anything that these people had ever experienced before. This was the internal explosion of evil that has now left some severe and serious fallout for God's people. They've caused this. So now, whereas the comfort that they experienced at the beginning of this story ended up creating chaos for them, perhaps the chaos that they now experience will create an anticipation in them the longing for a true and greater king. Listen, today, if, if you're here and you find yourself like Abimelech, maybe even as the people of God, looking in our hearts and seeing the, the selfish ambition, the selfishness, the serving of ourselves, we can be reminded that although we deserve judgment, we have received mercy through Jesus. And then the shedding of his blood and and his body being broken in our place for our sins, we receive communion. We receive fellowship with God because of what Christ has accomplished for us. And so today, as we come forward for communion, we receive the, the, the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus, reminding us that he has taken the judgment and the punishment for our sin that we deserve. And he's given us a verdict that we've been justified, that we've been accepted before him. We've been clothed in righteousness. 
Today, if you're here and maybe you still continue to wrestle with or haven't trusted in this work that Jesus has accomplished in the place of sinners, I encourage you to remain at your seat. Continue to think on the truth that God judges sin and that he will judge your sin in the ways that you've broken his laws and his requirements. Think about that. Reflect on that. And if you feel the weight of that, cry out to God, pray to God, talk to him, and ask for his mercy. Know that he is merciful in making a way through Jesus. Trust in him. If that's you today and you wouldn't call yourself a follower of Jesus, remain at your seat during this time and watch as the people of God come forward who are, are broken, who are weak, who have pursued other idols and have served self and have trusted in the finished work of Jesus in their place for their sin so that it can be said of them that, Mercy triumphs over judgment. Take a moment to reflect and we'll come forward for communion.